still in the book of James. Finished chapter 2 last week, so we're on chapter 3 this week. What we finished up with last time was a discussion of faith and works. And one of the things that I said is that the commentaries I have been reading go to great lengths to explain that James is not, in fact, contradicting Paul. And I never really thought he was. But that seems to be a problem that a lot of folks in the Sunday church have. That James, with his emphasis on works, and Paul, with his emphasis on grace, somehow are in conflict. I don't see that to be the case. Paul is perfectly fine with recognizing that your faith that doesn't result in action is useless, which is basically what James said. Tonight we're going to go to the tongue, and I did a word search on tongue or lips, and I got like 233 verses that talk about it. That's a big deal. I'm going to sort of talk about three things here as we go through this. James is going to be echoing Proverbs, Psalms, etc., that talk about the wisdom of taming your tongue. And that's certainly a good thing. The other thing about the tongue that is important is it's the only organ that is half hidden and half revealed. It's in your mouth. So when your mouth is closed, as it should be most of the time, well, you're wearing a mask. Ooh, I hadn't even thought of masks. When your mouth is closed, it's hidden. And when your mouth is open, as in your speaking, it's revealed. So it's an organ that is both hidden and revealed, depending on what you're doing. As we go through this, one of the things to keep firmly in mind is what God's opinion of the human heart is. His opinion of the human heart is not high. The first mention of the human heart is in Genesis, just before the flood. And he says, the inclination of the human heart is always evil continuously. And it doesn't get much better than that. And that's one of the reasons he destroys the place. And then after the flood, he says, huh, they're still evil, but I'm not going to destroy them anymore. So the thing about this section of James, where he's going to be talking about the tongue, is you want to keep in mind that in Proverbs and the wisdom literature, the tongue is the thing that reveals the heart. So you have an organ which, as I say, is partially concealed and partially out in the open, and it reveals what's in your heart. And if you have a good heart, your tongue says good things, and if you don't have a good heart, your tongue says evil things. So as we're reading through this, keep that concept in mind as he's talking about the power of the tongue and so forth. So let's start on chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So we're starting off talking about teaching, and he's talking about the peril 
of assuming you can teach. By the way, this passage of scripture always jerks me up short, sort of by way of making sure that I'm paying attention to what I teach so I don't lead anybody astray. Why I try and be very careful about what I say. And what James is saying is that teachers are held to a higher standard than random people. The idea that random people may have random words that come out of their mouth might be considered to be not nearly as serious as a teacher that has random wrong words coming out of his mouth because of course the purpose of a teacher is to influence others. Whereas a random person who runs his mouth, you can choose to ignore or not. You can choose to ignore a teacher too, but the point is you wouldn't be sitting in a room with a teacher did that teacher not have some kind of authority. So that's the first thing he's doing. Then he says, we all stumble in many ways, and if anybody does not stumble in what he says, now notice we stumble in many ways and stumble in what he says. So if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his own whole body. And of course, then he's going to go into this riff on horses and ships and all that kind of stuff. The idea being that the tongue is analogous to a rudder on a ship in that where the tongue goes, the body goes, just as it is with a ship or a horse. So verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Concept here is the bit in the mouth of a horse doesn't just control the mouth of the horse. It controls the entire horse. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the metaphor here is when you light a fire, the fire that lights something else need not be big. A match is entirely sufficient to burn down an entire forest. The whole point about this is your words which when you say them seem small and inconsequential can have very large ramifications. So how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's a reasonably strong statement. Now, as I said when we started this off, I have no idea where he wrote this, because he's fixing to get really starchy. And usually a biblical writer that gets as starchy as James gets is a prophet and is correcting something in some society and you have some idea of what the problem is that he's correcting with his starchy language. I don't find that here in James. This just seems to be a letter to Hebrews in the dispersion. Now, 
they may all have Christmas trees out there and he's trying to jerk them up short, in which case he knows something we don't know, which is entirely possible. I'm not suggesting that he doesn't know something we don't know, but he didn't see fit to put it in the letter. So it isn't clear to us why he is being so starchy with them. But this particular sentence in verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, comma, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, I take this paragraph in the spirit of what I led off with, which is God's opinion of the human heart. And the idea that the tongue is the organ that reveals what's in the heart. So, in the sense that Scripture doesn't have much good to say about the human heart, so too, James, in talking about the tongue this way, is simply reflecting the way the rest of Scripture handles the heart. And again, I don't understand why in this particular letter he's going in that route, but it's certainly consistent with Scripture. And if you go to Proverbs or Psalms or any place else you want to go, you find two versions of the tongue. Proverbs 10.20 The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, The heart of the wicked is of little worth. So you have a tongue and a heart. So the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. So you have choice silver and the little worth, and then the heart of the wicked versus the tongue of the righteous. So the idea is that someone who's righteous, in fact, has a heart that can stand to be exposed. Proverbs 12:19 Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. 12:22 Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Notice the difference between words, a lying tongue, and actions. Proverbs has what I would call I hesitate to use the word balanced because James's description of the tongue is certainly consistent with God's impression of the human heart. But the wisdom literature in Proverbs talks about the righteous and the fact that they use their tongue or their words to bring about good, whereas the wicked do not. Comment was, James is writing just before the Roman exile. And the Jews are of the opinion that the Roman exile was called by baseless hatred. 
which is to say you had too many scorpions in one bottle. They couldn't get along. So you had the Essenes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Boethians and all those folks, and they all hated each other. The epitome of that hatred was the crucifixion of Yeshua, where the hatred got to such a level that people were willing to kill over it. And so the Jews, rabbis, today say that the reason that they got sent into exile in 70 AD is because of this baseless hatred they had among themselves. And the comment was, James is writing to Hebrews during the run-up to that Roman exile. And perhaps what he is doing is upbraiding them for their baseless hatred. And that is a really good comment. It's the reason I repeated it. However, this is not written to the Jews in Israel. It's written to the Jews in the dispersion. Helping the Jews in the dispersion understand why the ones in Israel are up to their hips and hairy Romans, that could be the case. The comment was, perhaps what the problem is, is that he is reacting to the hatred that was directed against Yeshua. And again... He's not writing to Jews in Israel. He's writing to Jews in the dispersion. Onward. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. What I'm suggesting to you is very much in line with Proverbs You have wise people who show their wisdom by good actions, and you have hateful, angry people who show that through their tongue. The best one-liner I have seen this week, and it's not biblical, is Satan is the father of lies, and by their lies you can recognize his children. If you find somebody who is a pathological, consistent liar, you know who his father is. And by the way, one of the things that you will hear said by biblically illiterate people is we're all children of God. That's not true. It's not scriptural. In fact, Yeshua, when he's duking it out with the Pharisees, does not call them children of God. He calls them children of Satan. John chapter 8, if you want an example. So people that piously stand up and say, We're all children of God. Sorry, we're not. The Pharisees professed to be children of God. They professed to be righteous. They went to the temple every week. They went to the synagogue as often as necessary. They were observant religious externally. However, Yeshua regarded them as children of Satan. So the fact that somebody is in a church doesn't make him a child of God. The thing that makes him a child of God is that his heart reveals someone who is, among other things, not a liar. Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I would gently suggest you can apply that to Washington. I am very serious. I'm not being flip here. This idea that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and boasting and being false to the truth. I mean, that's sort of our national pastime. And what James says is, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's sort of a staple of comedy to poke fun on Congress, but at some point you need to get serious. And what I'm suggesting to you, and I suggested to you several times, is that the tongue exposes the heart. Chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Stop there for a minute and unpack some of that. First off, the very first, second maybe, vignette in Scripture is murder. So you have Cain and Abel, both of them bring a sacrifice, and God approves Abel's sacrifice and does not approve Cain's sacrifice. He gives Cain the opportunity to amend his sacrifice. In other words, it is entirely possible for Cain to go to his brother and swap a bushel of wheat for a lamb and come back and make a sacrifice. No problem whatsoever. Cain does not take that option. Instead, what Cain does is raises up in jealousy and murders his brother. So what James is talking about here is general human conditions But as I said before, this is a really starchy passage. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you, and so forth. It is you, 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 you. So it gives the impression that he is talking to somebody that he knows something about and that those people have some problem, but we're not privy to it. This kind of language is more typical of a prophet that is coming to a society that is deep in sin and telling them, repent or you're about to go into exile or you're about to get fired and brimstoned or words to that effect. So like when they went to Nineveh, if you don't repent here, you get 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. So it reads very much like that. But as I say, we're not privy to what the problem is. But everything he writes comes from Scripture. 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Covet means that you want something that somebody else has. So the first thing is you want something you don't have. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, then the next phrase he says is you do ask, but you don't get it because your motives for asking are not pure. Your motives for asking are to assuage your covetous spirit. In other words, it starts off with covetousness, which is a sin. Number 10 on the Big Ten list, thou shalt not covet. So we start off talking about coveting. And then you go into fighting and quarreling and you don't have because you don't ask. But then when you do ask, the reason you're asking is because you're coveting. And so that doesn't count and you don't get what you ask for. A lot of people will quote this in the context of prayer in the sense that, well, I mean, you lack something there and you lack it because you didn't ask your father for it. How stupid can you be? It's in that context. That is not what's being said here. This is a riff on covetousness and the fact that covetousness leads to murder and asking with a covetous heart isn't going to get you anywhere. The problem here is covetousness. They're praying about something somebody else has that they want. If you, being poor or whatever, you say, God, I really need some help with my rent this month. You're asking selfishly, quote unquote, because it's something you need. But you're not asking because you're looking at your next door neighbor who's in a mansion and saying, God, he's in a mansion and you're not doing anything for me. Why? There isn't anything wrong with talking to God about things that you want and things that you need. And certainly God has a different perspective on what you need than you do. That's entirely true. But the process of praying for things that you want and things that you need, want being perhaps frivolous, it's okay. There's no problem with that. The problem here is covetousness, where you're envious of what somebody else has, and you're trying to use prayer to assuage your covetousness. comment was, our prayer should be focused on our heart as opposed on what we need. And... Certainly, you want to enter into a conversation with God which is honest. And you want to open up your heart to Him. And you want to try and understand His heart in your situation. Having said that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, God, I really like to have X, Y, or Z. You know, I'm not coveting it or anything, but. Gee, I would really like to have that. Sort of like when your kid comes to you and says, gee, Dad, for Christmas I'd like to have, and you as a father now have some idea of how to shop for Christmas. I mean, you may decide, no, you can't actually have an elephant gun. It's going to have to be a slingshot. You may decide that for him, but the fact that he's telling you what his desires are is something that you as a father want to know. The whole point of this whole riff that we've been going over and over again is it's often taken out of context, as somebody mentioned, and it shouldn't be. It's talking about covetousness. And then down to verse 4, we've read this, but we'll go through that again. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So the idea of being focused on what the world wants instead of focused on what God wants or what God tells us he wants through his scriptures. I mean, that's very straightforward. The idea being, of course, that you can't serve two masters. The comment was, I don't understand verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? According to the commentaries I have read, and I can't find it, there is no such scripture. That's thing one. Thing two is, it isn't at all clear what spirit we're talking about. Does he yearn jealously over your spirit, which he has put within you? Or does he yearn jealously over the Holy Spirit that he has given to you? That is not clear. First and second Corinthians would not be something that James would have reference to. Scripture from James's point of view would be the Tanakh. In the letters part of the New Testament, when they refer to Scripture, it has to be the Tanakh because the letters are not yet regarded as Scripture. The commentary that I read says nobody has any idea what this is. You are in good company being confused. The comment was that an adulterous people is one who, for all practical purposes, is turning to idols, or another way to say it, is turning to the world for what they want instead of turning to God for what they want. Moving right past verse 5, on to verse 6. But he gives more grace... Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is all over Proverbs. No problem at all with that one. 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Strong letter to follow. This resist the devil and he will flee from you, gets quoted a lot. And one of the things about resisting the devil is you actually have to resist. It is not the case that the devil will come upon you and see your breastplate of righteousness and turn around and run in the other direction. You actually have to resist. The way I would describe it is if you read the book of Joshua and the end of the Torah, Deuteronomy, The charge to Joshua is be strong and of good courage. So God says, I will give all them Philistines into your hand. But in order for that to happen, you need to put on your sword and you need to march into them. And until you put your sword on and march into them, they are not going to go away. They are not simply going to fade away in front of you as you wander into the land. You're going to have to fight for it. But understand that I will give you victory. So I regard this phrase, resist the devil and he will flee from you, in that same sense. You've actually got to strap on your sword and go after him. So cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, as a strong letter to follow. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
This reads like a letter, you know, the letter to the Corinthian church where they are deep into worldliness and sin and Paul has to jerk them up. It reads like that kind of a letter. But we don't know what the situation is, which I find somewhat frustrating. I mean, it it is what it is, so the fact that I'm frustrated is not going to change it. But if you read Proverbs... All of these principles are listed in Proverbs, but they're listed as wisdom. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Okay, that's a proverb. What it doesn't say is shape up or you're going to get a rod across your back. You're to assume that, and if you see yourself as being one who is lacking in sense, you are being encouraged to amend your ways because you know at some point your ways are going to lead to something bad, but it is not accusatory. It's simply, this is the way the world works. You may choose to be a fool, in which case you're going to have consequences for that, Or you may work to become wise, in which case you're going to have these fruits. But it doesn't say, you dummy, shape up, which is the way James writes. The idea of humbling yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you is all over the Proverbs. So the idea that walking in humility, people and God will see your humble heart and they will be the ones to exalt you. One of the things that I've been taught ever since I was a little kid is it's better to let somebody else blow your horn than doing it yourself. And the problem with that is nobody ever blows your horn as much as you think it needs to be blown. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. And the fact that that's the way of the world is sometimes frustrating to people who aren't getting their horn blown enough But the wisdom in the Bible says it's really more effective if somebody else blows your horn than if you go around blowing it yourself. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is one of those passages that often gets used wrongly. It is not the case that you are not to look on people's behavior and be discerning. That would be foolishness. What you are not to do, however, is you are not to presume to judge someone's heart. That's between him and God certainly able to judge their behavior and and I don't know a single parent that doesn't say I don't want you hanging around with so and so because he's a bad influence when I came to God I quit hanging around with some of my friends because they were bad influences on me not that they'd ever did anything really wrong but they always sort of pushed the envelope and I tend to push the envelope so the combination was not good so I I can't be friends anymore simply because we always wind up on the edge of something we shouldn't be doing. 
And that's just wisdom. And by the way, those friends are good people. They are not bad people. It's just the, the combination of the two of us was not a good idea. But I'm not in any way judging them because, as I say, everything I know about them is good. So the idea is what you want to do is you want to be doing what you are supposed to be doing and not spending a whole lot of time worrying about what somebody else is or is not doing unless it's something evil that you need to deal with.